0: Whatever you do, don't touch that dial. It's time now for QSO, a radio program all about ham radio. And today we have some very, very special guests. Jack Davis, K6YC. He's the chairman of the SBE Chapter 43, that's Society of Broadcast Engineers, in Sacramento, California, also the chief engineer for KTXL, Channel 40 out there. He's got some interesting stories to tell. And K1LGQ, and that's Dennis Mirandis. He is with the New England QRP Club, where they say the excitement is in building. Interesting show. It's coming up right here on QSO. How many of you would like to operate 80 meters, but you can't because of antenna restrictions? Well, that's over. You can operate 80 meters right now. You can operate from... Your home, your apartment, you can take it on the road with you. It's the brand new Transworld Antennas 8080. Go to their website and check it out. Transworldantennas.com This is a portable antenna, but it can be a permanent antenna. It's stealth. It's not a low-profile antenna. This thing is a performance-driven piece of engineering. You need to see it. It will be at Dayton and you need to hear one of these on the air. If you want to operate 80 meters and you can't... I love the 80 meter band. I can't imagine not being able to operate on 80. But nonetheless, if you're in that position, don't stay in that position. Go to the website and check it out, transworldantennas.com. Go up there and take a look at their brand new 8080 and look for it at Dayton. My guest today, K1LGQ. And uh this is Dennis Mirandis. Am I saying your name right, sir? Absolutely. and he is with the new england q r p club and uh you know we've we've heard so much about you know no sunspot activity, and I realize that sunspot activity is down uh, or non existent <laughs> that's probably a better term <laughs> and uh but yet I still hear people talking about making all these contacts and uh, one of the most exciting things, I think, really, uh, in ham radio today is low power QRP. Dennis, tell tell us about about QRP and and, and what all that means. And, and we'll start. All right,
1: let me let me give you a little uh, a, a, a quick survey course as to what QRP really is. Uh, probably uh, twenty to twenty five years ago, twenty QRP was a hundred watts or less. And now we have progressed where we've become so technical and so advanced with our receivers that we no longer think of 100 watts as QRP. And QRP now is considered 5 watts or less as being the low power that we're used to. If you're operating sideband and you're operating phone, it is probably 10 watts, 10 watts of power. And if you're operating CW, it will be 5 watts. Now, there are a lot of people who are interested in going below 5 watts, and we have a designation called P which is less than 1 watt. Now, there's more power coming from a flashlight in your hand than there is power coming from a radio, a QRP radio. And just yesterday, I was talking to a fellow in Michigan with 700 milliwatts and he is talking from michigan to new hampshire and we had a nice 30 minute conversation so qrp is just simply low power
0: well now i guess my question is is um why why the push for low power this is an intriguing thing and i i see a whole lot of folks that are really really into it and i we you know hams that are running 100 watts Sometimes they give you a real peculiar look when you talk about QRP. They don't understand it. So what is that? What is that spark that, uh, that makes you want to get on the air and, and, and turn the power way down?
1: I think the, the real primary reason <coughs> is we can do it. It's there because we can do it. And there are a lot of people who feel that if you're going to operate 100 watts or 500 watts or even 1,000 watts or 1,500 watts PEP, there's really not a challenge. That, that's not a challenge at all. And that operating 5 watts or less, doing QRP, is because we can do it. We can operate and, 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 and work all states, work all zones, and work all continents with 5 watts or less. People like to build. And the art of building a radio today is just as exciting as it was when I first started and today the cost of equipment is really prohibitive. We're not talking the 4 and 5 and 600 dollar radio there are now over four figures and people are spending a lot of money for a big station. QRP is low power low low cost we, we don't spend a lot of money. And as a, uh, as, a, uh, as a hobby where already things are pretty expensive, the fact that we have to pay less to, to enjoy the radio more, we think that's wonderful. So ease of operation. Radios are small. You can have it almost like a Dick Tracy wristwatch. You can keep it in your shirt pocket. You can carry it around in your lunchbox. And you can talk to the world. All you have to do is throw up an antenna. Connect a battery, put a hand key or a microphone, and you are on the air. You don't need a lot of equipment.
0: Now, when you when you're running QRP today, and, and folks that want are, are interested in getting into it, or maybe we've got some technicians that uh, you know have been waiting to pass their general test or whatever uh, that, that want to get on the HF bands. Um, what about the receivers? Let, let's just say that someone is really. On a budget situation, and I'm, and in, in you, if you're going to run QRP, uh, does it does it require still the state of the art receiver to go with the low power transmitter?
1: the The technology today and the know-how as to how we can put, the, put these pieces together is uh, is far better than we've ever had it in the past, and we are able to build low. Cost receivers, and we're able to keep the cost down, and the receivers are just as sensitive. Uh, they're, they're not less. They're just as sensitive as some of the high price spreads. And there is one to, uh, one radio uh, QRP club out in California called NorCal, and they're out of the San Francisco area, and they are particularly. Into, um, they, they they came up with a radio um, oh probably fifteen years ago that was called the NorCal Forty which has later been passed off as a commercial radio, but they invented and came up with a radio receiver that could receive uh, 0.5 microvolt sensitivity, which is pretty much what most of your commercial radios can receive today. So as far as do you have to have something spectacular, no. No, you, you don't. We, we have the state-of-the-art, and we've reduced it to a, a small cube, and we can put it in the palm of your hand, and, and we can hear people just as much. You may have to listen a little bit more carefully. It doesn't have a lot of the, what we call the bells or the whistles that go with some of the, bigger, more expensive radios. But we do have a receiver that can receive, which is all you're looking for. And we have a transmitter that can transmit.
0: Well, now, okay. Let's say you decide you want to you, you're going to build up some of this stuff. You know, and and there's a lot of people that really want to do this. I mean. I was amazed when I went to uh when we went to dayton and, and even huntsville the the ham fest, uh seeing all the the kits available people who are one of buying a kit and the and the guy that really stole my heart is a guy that that uh, is doing all the stuff in the tuna fish cans you know <laughs> I mean that it, I mean I think that is so cool you know you buy the can you go home you put it in the can opener you open it up all the parts are inside and you assemble this thing and yes. uh, uh and, and of course it isn't uh that it's that it's impossible to find the parts, but something like that does make it a little easier because all the exact parts are right there, and it saves you hunting them all out and ordering the things and all that. Of course, some people enjoy that too so but anyhow uh what what do you figure let's just say a person the first thing they want to do is they want to build a a little receiver now what do you think what do you think their cost is going to be putting something like that together? And how much? Well,
1: let, me go, let me let me go back to that first person you talked to about the uh, tuna fish can. Okay, uh, that's my friend Rex W. N. R. E. X., who's up in Bath, Maine, and uh, Rex and I are very good friends. And we find uh, he found that if he could put all of the materials, uh, all the resistors and the capacitors and the crystal and wire and everything he could find to build this kit, if he could package it inside of a can, and in this case, a tuna fish can without the tuna fish and you have a pull-top tab, you've got an entire radio. And so what he decided to do was take the uh, the trouble out of ordering and scrounging and just looking for the, for the parts that you need. Uh, there are probably uh, 30 or so QRP clubs across the country. Uh, I would say half of those are extremely active, and we make kits. And we love this hobby so much, we love QRP even more, that we put out QRP kits. The New England QRP Club just uh, recently put out a, a filter kit to um, enhance receiving, just to make your receiver a little bit better. It's a, it's a noise filter. It's called a SCAF filter, S-C-A-F. And we thought we would put New England in front of it, so we call it the NESCAF. little play on NESCAFE. And these radio clubs or these QRP clubs across the country have uh, a great deal of time to piece these things together, put it into one package, and sell it to those people who are interested in making a radio. Low cost, low effort, a lot of professional help. A lot of these hams who are doing this, a lot of the amateurs across the country are extremely dedicated into their hobby, and you are receiving professional, top-grade professional help. However, it's geared for the hobbyist. It's geared for the beginner, the neophyte, the person who wants to just do a little soldering, get out and to uh, put a radio together, uh, have it operate on the air, and be proud as could be and say, I made this. This works. I saved thousands of dollars, and I'm talking to the world where a lot of people spend thousands of dollars and only talk to a couple of people. It really is um, uh, an all-in-one inclusive package. There are many clubs that are doing this, as well as commercial companies who think that, you know, if we could put this uh, as a package, people will buy it. And um, I think they're right. You're going to find that there are a lot of people who like to build, and the accomplishment is beyond belief.
0: Well, you yes. know, I guess my my question is, but what what do you think their overall cost is to, just to, just to get into the thing?
1: Oh, thirty dollars. Is
0: Th- that too high? Thirty dollars. Okay, now what is that for? Thirty dollars. What are you building?
1: Thirty dollars. You could build a transceiver.
0: A transceiver. You
1: can $40, build forty a- dollars. You could build the same transceiver and maybe have a little bit more power, and for maybe fifty dollars. You could have the same radio and maybe another gizmo that would make it a little bit different than the thirty or forty
0: dollar one. Now you're, uh, talk, you're talking about a fully functional transceiver that you can get on the air and talk to the world, and you could and you can uh, procure the kit for right around forty dollars. Exactly.
1: This is exactly it, right to your door, and you open up the package, and everything is in front of you. The directions and you provide the know-how
0: okay now tell me a little bit about this rig now is this this is is it strictly it's a cw rig correct
1: there are radios that are dedicated for either sideband or cw and because they're dedicated uh you you'll find that maybe one is a little bit less expensive than the other Uh, maybe the cost of a microphone may be a little too prohibitive to put it as a uh, part of the kit and maybe you can supply your own microphone So a sideband transmitter, transceiver, may be missing some of the basic parts that you would ordinarily have at home anyways. A a, a microphone, it would probably be the only thing. Maybe a a battery, you would have to supply a a battery or something to make your little radio work. And by the way, the batteries are nothing more than uh, pen light batteries or flashlight batteries, um, size D, double A. You may even find what we call gel cell. Uh, 12 volt batteries these are relatively easy to come by and to put these together and get them on the on the air easy
0: now now you're now a sideband rig a small single sideband qrp transceiver kit uh from from the uh uh, new england group is, is gonna is gonna cost somebody about how much money do you think
1: Well, we have had one, uh, and there's a a fellow who has put him out. His his name is Dave, and his call is K1SWL, and he has put out a sideband radio that he uh, called the the Mountain, the Green Mountain. Being a New Englander, he's tried to put all the New England states and dedicated this one from uh, Vermont as the Green Mountain state, and he has a sideband rig. uh, I believe it's selling for $60, $65. that's a It's, uh, it's up and running, and you uh, you supply the box, and he'll
0: supply the pots. That's unbelievable. We'll be right back with our guest, Dennis Mirandis, K1LGQ, with the New England QRP Club right after this. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to H1N1Kits.us. That's H1N1Kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. It's the 4040. It's a new 40-meter monoband antenna. It looks just like the Adventurer or the TW2010. It's the perfect antenna for high-performance DX communications in a portable package. This antenna system is ideal for camping, emergencies, or permanent installation where you gotta go stealth. 7.0 7.0 to 7.3 megahertz without the necessity of either manual band changing or the need for a controller. Just attach the feed line and you're ready to talk. That's the Trans World Adventurer 4040. Go to their website, take a look. Transworldantennas.com that's transworldantennas.com. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com, and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to QSORadioShow.com. That's QSORadioShow.com or TedRandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L. And we'll look for your email. And now on QSO, back to our guest Dennis Mirandis, K1LGQ with the New England QRP Club. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about operating a little bit. Um, uh, give me a little rundown on on maybe what the typical thing is that that you would uh, that you that you would run or you would see that it would be fun to run. Um, one of the things about QRP that I, that seems to me that is intriguing is the portability. Uh, being able to have the rig is so small uh, that you can literally, you know, pack a wire antenna in a briefcase with the radio, or uh, you can pick up an antenna like the TW2010, which is already, you know, ready to roll in a bag that you can take with you. And, uh, you, can, you know, that's what my son does. He takes so They're one of our sponsors, you know, the Transworld Antennas. He takes his 2010 to the park uh, on the weekends with his little 5-watt QRP rig, and, uh, you know, somebody says anything to him uh, about the fact that he maybe should use some more power, he just sneers at them. And uh, (laughs) he has a lot of fun with that. So, uh, But tell me about operating now. I mean, uh, if if a person decides to get into QRP, uh, give us a little rundown on a typical... You know, a, 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 a typical session when you sit down and you say, hey, I'm going to do a little ham radio today. What, what do you wind up doing?
1: Well, I, you know, because QRP is so easy and it's less complicated and, of course, less costly, uh, you, you don't have to carry a great deal of material with you to set up a radio. And going out to the park or turning off the side of the road to a roadside or just simply sitting in your backyard is, uh, is perhaps the easiest you can do. And, again, once you have your radio and you throw an antenna into, the, uh, into a tree, or as I have done, I've hooked it onto the end of a fence and I've held it horizontal about you know, six feet off the ground, and I've worked with uh, a great number of people over in Europe. But the ease of oper- operating it is, is pretty much the bottom answer. All you have to do is just simply uh, open up a box and can connect it. Now, it's interesting that we in this part of the world operate on certain frequencies, and I'll take Europe for another example, that they operate on different frequencies, and uh, we'll take, uh, oh, probably 40 meters. Uh, It's generally considered that uh, 7040 is a QRP frequency here in this part of the world. However, in Europe, 7030 is considered a QRP frequency. So what do we do? Well, we go to both. And we go up and down the bands, and we just simply call CQ, calling anybody, and we'll just put slash QRP. Uh, The New England QRP Club had uh, sponsored a a contest last Saturday. It was from 11 o'clock Eastern time in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And the contest was work as many people as you can, get away from your house, drive to the park, Get out of the car, throw up an antenna, and just sit at a card table and just work all the other people that you can. And we had uh, hundreds of people across the country who were participating in this in this contest. Uh, the, 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 the contest is, uh, in this particular case, uh, the New England QRP Club sponsors it once a year. But it seems like every month there's another club across the country that is sponsoring a different contest. And it's just the fun of getting up and getting out. Where can you go? Your imagination is really the the person who will stop you. You can go anywhere. And if it's legal and if you're not trespassing and if you're doing something that's not obnoxious, (laughs) you can throw up an antenna, you can uh, take out a battery, and you can operate. I have gone to uh, uh, the state beaches here in New Hampshire. Uh, As long as you're not bothering somebody, you can... Operate just where you're sitting, sitting in the sand. I've gone to some of the state parks. A lot of the states across the country have state parks that are beautiful. And we're all invited. These are our state parks. And I asked one of the park attendants, is it okay if I use my radio here? And he said, this is your park. You can do what you want. Just don't be illegal or obnoxious. And I said, that's fine. So operating is really a lot of fun. And you know what? There are people on the other end receiving who can't wait to hear you and it really makes for a good combination you want to contact somebody and they want to speak to you well
0: you know i you know i can recall uh you know having the novice license and uh of course back then you know you know we were running transmitters that only put out 10 watts you know or or maybe 15 watts which today you know everybody kind of they wonder a little bit about some but we didn't have any trouble work in the world on 10 watts we didn't have any any trouble at all and that you know the the difference between running something below five watts and 10 watts on the receive end is not nearly as dramatic as a lot of people would think it would be uh power is kind of a of an elusive thing in other words um and and uh, i working in um in broadcast engineering for a number of years i mean we used to have radio station managers that would just lose their marbles if the if the transmitter power output, let's say, was 10 kilowatts and you were having some difficulties and you had to reduce the power to 5, okay? Well, you know what? 99% of the people in the city could tell no difference between 5,000 and 10,000 watts output on the transmitter. They, they couldn't, de- even in the fringe areas, they couldn't detect it. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, power has become a... Um, I would just say it's become misleading. Power levels have become misleading. People think that if you're if you're running a hundred watt rig, you know, and you put a uh a linear amplifier on and you go to fifteen hundred watts, that the the number of contacts you're gonna make are gonna go up in proportion to the power increase. It just isn't true. Uh and uh, and, and there's a lot of headaches running higher power as well. Uh and of course, we find that out in shortwave broadcasting, where you're running hundreds of thousands of watts. You know, <laughs> hey, you haven't lived until you've seen a line arc on a, on a hundred kilowatt shortwave transmitter. <laughs> yeah,
1: the idea of, of power, as you said, is, is really misleading. And, and uh, one of the marketing features of any company is uh, in, in the mental oh, the mental uh, theory here in this uh, this part of the world is that bigger is better, more. Is better. Uh, we, we say that with QRP, more, uh, less is best. And we, we operate low power and still contact people without um, without a, without any problems. Um, you, you hit on a subject about if you had 100 watts and you increase it to 1500 PEP power, you would find that, okay, you may actually talk to more people because you're probably going to beam your signal and more people will be able to hear you. And with low power, QRP, fewer people will hear you, but it's not that they can't hear you, it's that there are low you up, and that you're unable to get your signal heard. There's a lot of interference on the radio band. I would like to think there is little difference in power, because everything that is transmitted from any commercial or amateur radio is all dependent and everything that, that deals with propagation is, is dictated by the sun. Everything that we do, everything from your cell phone to your TV, to your commercial radio station to amateur radio, is all dictated by what's happening on the, uh, on the sun. And we have what we call propagation. Another way of saying propagation is like the sea waves that come onto the beach. We have high tide and low tide. And when it's high tide, we see an awful lot of water, and that's probably when there's an awful lot of signals that are in the air. And when it's on low tide, you probably only hear and and see the biggest that you can hear or see, and they come cascading onto the beach. And the same thing is with radio waves. Rather than southwater waves, radio waves are the same thing. And they're dictated by the speed of how much propagation is dictated by the sun. If we have... the good number of sunspots, which tells us how much we're going to be or how far we're going to be transmitting or receiving. Um, then it's the sun that dictates where we're going to be heading um, without getting too technical into propagation. Uh, we, we, there are good days and bad days as far as radio is concerned. And when when radio is at its best, low power is just as, uh, just as rewarding as high power. And low power gets
0: through well you know i guess the the thing is the only time i have ever seen uh you know an out and out need i guess for higher levels of power and that is if you're trying to work a net on 75 meters during a thunderstorm (laughs) (laughs) where you have thunderstorm activity going all different directions and uh uh the, the lightning crashes are driving the front end of the receiver into saturation and all that kind of stuff that's kind of nice for the guy on the other end to be a little louder than he normally would be and in the summertime on 75 and 80 meters you know that but once again see there's no challenge in that i mean it's kind of like i'm just going to force feed the atmosphere here <laughs> and uh we're going to make sure that we uh you know that we make contact um i guess uh
1: the summertime does have a lot of static on seventy-five meters, and there are operating conditions that are during the uh, during the different months uh, here in New Hampshire. When uh, we get cold weather, and especially when the snow just starts to fall and freezes up the area, our radio waves, for some reason, are a little bit less staticky. But you know, it's kind of funny. I can listen without transmitting. I can listen, and I can hear a storm coming in my direction because radio. Uh, Snowstorms and rainstorms produce static, and what you hear is the static in the atmosphere. You know, a lot of people say, well, what is all this static that's on my radio, whether it's your car radio or your home radio? Well, (laughs) that's the electrons fighting for space up in the atmosphere, and they produce produce a lot of static, and, and there are certain times of the year and certain times of the storm that the static is just barreling through. So me sitting here in uh, in New Hampshire and there's a storm that's working its way through the Ohio Valley heading up toward New England, I can hear it. And what's even better is that when it's out to sea and I have my antenna facing, let's say, toward the west coast and the storms on the east coast, um, I can turn my antenna into the storm and I can hear all the static that's going on. (laughs) It's kind of a science science, uh, experiment that there is static in storms.
0: Let me ask you this question now. What about what about uh, operating? Uh, is there interest in UHF and VHF uh, QRP?
1: Well, UHF and VHF is uh, on a different propagation plane, and there we're talking line of sight. And because line of sight deals with virtually the horizon that the person is standing on, I can talk from where I am in New Hampshire to stations in Boston, which is approximately 60 miles away but if i tried to talk to somebody in new york the curvature of the earth is such that my radio waves didn't bend to get into new york and i have a problem and my problem is they can't hear me and i can't transmit to them but there are certain times that when we when when mother nature fools us with um... The, uh, the aurora borealis, for example, which is nothing more than an, an electron storm, or we have uh, something called ducting or tropic-fearing fear tropic fearing, uh, communications, <clears throat> we find that we can hear people across the country, but it's only momentary. But VHF and UHF is usually line of sight. If somebody is at one end of up the street and you're at the other end, not a problem. If you're on a mountaintop and you're looking down it wouldn't be a problem. Cellular telephone is all working on what we call line of sight. Go ahead.
0: Well, I, was, I, I guess what I was wondering is, uh, and I had never heard of anyone saying that they were a QRP enthusiast on VHF and UHF. And I know there's a lot of guys running, you know, beams, like, say, for example, on, on two meters and running single sideband. And, of course, there's the, the six-meter band. And, and I just wondered, how does QRP play in there? I mean, is there, are there, is there an interest up there, or is QRP mainly HF Communications?
1: QRP is, is it's easier to build materials on HF. Uh, when, you're, when you're building and you have all the parts in front of you, HF is one of the easier uh, ways to get onto, a, onto the radio. And when you're uh, on VHF, it's a little trickier and requires a lot more technology and a little bit more skill in building a VHF or UHF transceiver. Uh, building something on those frequencies, is a, uh, I, I think it's more know-how. Um, it's not that you can't do it. It just requires a little bit more know-how and uh, maybe a little bit more experience. That's probably the only difference.
0: Well, let's let's talk a minute about the bands, the different the different bands, and uh, as far as how that plays into QRP. And a person just getting into it, where would you suggest they start? What, what's a, what's a good band to start on? All purpose <laughs> all purpose band, uh, and then and then what bands would you recommend if they're looking for DX or they want to do something a little special? And and what are some areas that maybe on QRP they may want to just stay away from?
1: Um okay let me let me answer that uh can you um <laughs> uh, Ted, aside from answering that uh, I, I there is somebody at my door and they're banging on it. can you hold on for a minute sure okay the uh probably the easiest is to get on h f uh high frequency and to get on h f is uh, is easy because the the pots are minimal you don't it doesn't require a lot of skill. Uh, of course, the, the, the bands are broken down by numbers, and, and it goes by the number of meters. So the 80-meter uh, band for CW or 75-meter band for phone uh, are easy to operate. Uh, most QRP operators are on 40 meters and 20 meters. And they operate where they can simply put their radios on, and uh, they, they can almost be assured that they will be able to speak to somebody as well. Uh, Another band is 30 meters, which is dedicated only and solely to CW. And because Morse code is the only way to go, and because it's 200 watts or less uh, operating privileges, you have a better chance of always talking to somebody. Uh, There are meeting places that you can meet, uh, QRP frequencies, I should say, that you will be able to get on the radio, uh, make a contact, and almost be assured that you will... We'll, we'll talk to somebody across the country. Uh, my favorite is 40 meters uh, during the daytime, uh, and 20 meters during the daytime, and 40 as well as n- at night. And uh, <clears throat> it's not a it's not a, h- a hard um, but it's not difficult to talk to somebody in Europe every day with five watts or less to um, stations in Europe.
0: Now, when you're operating QRP, how is the operation a little different? I mean, do you do you conduct yourself a little differently than you would? Say if you're the, the way you're used to operating, with um, you know, with a hundred watts or, or more.
1: Operating on QIP is um, is is short. It is uh, it is it's it, everything is very brief. There's no rag chewing on on QIP because all they have to do is um, establish a contact uh exchange uh, uh locations, what they're what they're using for a radio, for a receiver, for a transmitter, or what their antenna is, uh a quick weather report and then it's over. Uh, they, they they just try to get the minimum of information. But it doesn't go on forever and ever. And the conversations are usually limited because uh of uh, propagation or you don't know how the radio waves are gonna hold out and because it's low power and sometimes people are using battery power. That uh, sometimes the batteries run low, so you you have to kind of keep your conversations
2: low. Uh,
0: well, I was wondering because I was thinking there be there would be some considerable difference. I would think, especially when you're calling. I mean, you know, you don't hear too many people calling CQ today. You know, so I'm I'm thinking that in the QRP mode, you're going to be calling CQ quite a bit. Is that not the case?
1: You do, yeah. the The number of uh, of contacts per hour is a little bit less. So you're... Uh, I, I, per, I prefer to call CQQRP. In fact, every time I give my call uh, on CW, I'll, I'll simply sign it as K1LGQ slash QRP so that the person who's receiving this knows that, okay, if the signal is a little bit lower than ordinarily, uh, this station is operating with limited power, and that they will they have a better idea of how to tune that station in.
0: Um, uh, now I'm going to ask you <laughs> to tell us a little bit as to how you first got interested in ham radio. What was it that attracted you into the hobby and and your Go ahead.
1: Well, what, 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 well all right. Let's see if I can capsulize this. Uh first of all, let, let me say that I I'm I'm already celebrating uh my 51st year of ham radio. Uh I was um into ham radio when I was a teenager. Actually, I was in junior high school, probably, where a friend of mine, real, real close buddy, saw an advertisement in the local newspaper where they were giving radio courses. And he asked, uh, would I be interested? And, of course, I said, not even the slightest interest. So he mailed in a postcard with my name on it. I got a phone call from somebody to come visit to the junior high school on a certain night and I ended up uh, learning something about Morse code and radio theory. Uh, the hook went deep. I have not stopped. There hasn't been a year in my life that I have not said to myself, this has got to be the best hobby ever. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, a little background interesting is that <laughs> I am not technical in as much as I'm an engineer. I, uh, I have taught English in the high school, and now I'm presently teaching college English, and I also have taught electronics, but I am not a technical person, and the fact that English is a background, most people are surprised that I know as much as I do, but it's only because you pick it up very easily. It's, it's It's not voodoo or black magic, it's just a lot of interesting things.
0: Uh, what, was, what were some of your first rigs when you first got into, into amateur radio? Well, how did you start out?
1: I started off with a, uh, a homemade transmitter. And it was uh, what we call an 807. And it was a, a kind of a funny little tube that glowed in the dark. Uh, it had 17.5 watts. I, I throw in the half because I thought that was really super. Uh, the receiver was a borrowed army receiver, what they called a BC348Q. And uh, I remember borrowing it from a fellow for a week. Uh, a year had gone by, he asked for it back, <laughs> and, and that's the way it began. I, uh, he, got his, he got his radio back. I went out and I bought a used one, and I just kept wheeling and dealing, trying to get uh, a better radio, um, a, a newer transmitter, and I made pretty much most of all of the gear that I, I have when I was much younger. I, I found it to be really intriguing.
0: Well, The first transmitter I ever used was one of those little Amico tube jobs, and I can't think of the, the model number on it. But, boy, they sold for, like, what, $19 or something. I think that was the WM1. Okay, and now if you find one on eBay, they're a couple of hundred dollars because <laughs> they're a <laughs> yeah. collector's well, item. You
1: know? Nostalgia isn't cheap. <laughs> uh,
0: so, so anyhow, uh, you started off. Now, did you, uh, I guess I want to say you started off, obviously, as a novice, more than likely.
1: I was a novice, and it was good for one year, and according to the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission said that I could only use this radio license for one year, and if I was interested, I would have to upgrade and do something serious. I couldn't wait to do this, and the the next uh, step was to get a technician or a general class license, and I did that three months after I got my novice, and the rest is history. I have not stopped and worked my way up to the top.
0: Uh, how did, how did you transition from CW into phone? What was your first experience with operating phone?
1: I think it was the radio that I bought. I, I think the idea was I, I the first radio I had was a transmitter only for CW, and then the second one that I actually put together had an option for phone. So I, I, I bought a microphone and got onto uh, the phone band and sending. Uh, CW seemed oh it seemed to it, it, it took a seat. however, you know talking on the microphone seemed more challenging, and I said, "Oh gee, isn't this interesting and I was really curious what other people were thinking, especially where my signals were going uh, south america and, and into Europe, and I was finding out that gee there's a lot to be a lot to be understood and a lot of knowledge to be gained but then as I, uh, as, as I probably get a little bit older and, and I found that you know. There's something missing, and I went back to Morse code, and it's like a foreign language. Once you learn it, you don't ever get rusty. You never forget it, and I just simply uh, I prefer that 99% of the time over the the microphone. I, I find that phone has its advantages, and Morse code has its advantages, too, especially on QRP. If all else fails, you're going to be able to be heard with a CW signal.
0: Oh, I, I know. To me, it's a CW is kind of a relaxing thing. It's not like uh, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, you, when you sit when you sit down and do a session of CW, you know, I don't know. It's just relaxing. It's not. Uh, it's. It, I find phone operation sometimes a little intense, and I guess it's because <laughs> you know, you, know, I you, know
1: you, 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 you when you say relaxing, uh, I, I listen to some of the phone, and there are some people, and this is unfortunate. There are some people who abuse a good system and they swear and and they challenge and they dictate and they overtake your conversation and they call you names uh, with a microphone, that's easy. You know, it it sounds like the olden days of Citizens Band Radio on Morse code, CW. You don't have that. There's not a lot of, there's no trash talk. People are very civil to each other. Every conversation, everybody says, thank you. It's nice talking to you and we hope to meet up again and whether they do or not everybody is uh, very pleasant to each other
0: now oh, that's you know that's the thing that i that i guess i enjoyed about it the most and i know when having the novice uh you know my <laughs> my goal uh when i was younger was you know how many cards can i collect and you know what i didn't i didn't much care about the awards and i didn't care a whole lot i mean i liked dx but it was more of Here's four more cards I can put on the wall today, you know, and uh, uh, collect- well, go ahead. If,
1: if, if radio is my first hobby, uh, collecting the, uh, the cards or the QSL cards is my second hobby. I, I wish I could send and receive a card to every single contact I make. It's, 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 one, of the, it's one of the best parts of the hobby that I, I absolutely love. I love to see what other people are doing, and some of the best cards that I ever received were some of the homemade ones when I was a novice. Now I find that there are some real picture cards, there are some photographs that are beyond that anybody could ever imagine. Uh, I have a homemade one, and my homemade card uh, was, was doodled by a student in the classroom who I tried to explain what amateur radio was. He um, he liked uh, I liked what he doodled so much that I actually turned around and used it for my own QSL card. But sending and receiving a card is, uh, I, I think, it's the final compliment of when you talk to somebody on the radio. It's 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 one of the nicest ways of saying thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
0: You know, I I really enjoyed having you on. I I wanna, I wanna do one more thing though before I let you go because I don't wanna, I don't wanna keep you too long, and I'm sure you've got things to do. Um, For the folks that are just thinking, saying, "Well, yeah, this sounds intriguing," or for somebody that's thinking about getting into ham radio and they're saying, "I don't have 500 bucks for a rig. I don't have," of course, you can buy a rig on, you know, you can buy a used rig for a couple hundred dollars and get on the air. But for that intrigue and learning and all the things that you're talking about today with QRP. Um, Why don't we talk just a bit about where to go and how to find out more and how to get started in this?
1: This is easy. I think we're all pretty much familiar with uh, the computers and the network, and I think we can go to Google, and I think if you keyed in QRP radio, just the the three letters QRP space radio, you would come up with uh, maybe 15 to 25 pages of just material alone. And the um, the reader can then you know go into into any website and then decide for themselves how far and how much they want to go into this hobby using QRP. It's relatively inexpensive. Um, QRP radio just by definition is low power, low cost, high mobility, ease of operation, and there are a lot of people who are willing to help you. And it just just go to uh, the internet. Uh, Throw out some key words, such as QRP or QRP radio, and you will find that there are um, a number of web links that will direct you to where you can spend your money.
0: Well, I want to say the group that you're with, which is the New England QRP Club, uh, their web address is newenglandqrp.org. Uh, just NewEnglandQRP.org, and if I suppose if you went into Google, I did it just a few minutes ago. You put in New England QRP. The first link that pops up is to the New England QRP Club site. So uh, that's you
1: know what's interesting is that we don't have a clubhouse, and we are the New England Club. And I uh, I will call a meeting administrator for the club, and I will call a meeting, and we will meet up in Maine. We do go to the ARRL meeting uh, the American Radio Relay League in Newington, Connecticut. We will meet there. We meet in Massachusetts. We don't have a meeting house, but where we do meet is where the club meets. Radio waves have no boundaries. and We didn't think that New England should have a club site, so what we do is just have a New England club, and we just simply get together, and we just simply exchange a lot of stories. We do have a lot of fun.
0: Well, it sounds like you do, and I want to thank you so very much for joining us today.
1: It was and, really an exceptional conversation. I I could go on for more time than we have. I, uh, I I truly love this hobby, and and QRP is one of the nicest little areas of amateur radio that somebody can get into. It's one that will uh, satisfy. It is so self rewarding. You just can't uh, you can't imagine what it's like. It's it's um, well try it and then you'll understand it.
0: <laughs> well, I want to recommend it to everybody because I think that. Uh Uh, in amateur radio today i I think a lot of guys are suffering from boredom i think they get on and they buy all this equipment and they surround (laughs) themselves with all these toys and you know then they and then they kind of like i don't know i mean i i don't know how many hams i see that have the latest and greatest and all of it is covered in dust
1: there are some people who have no limit to money and there are a lot of us who have a great deal of limit and I, like a, a lot of other people around, around the country, you know, we're, we're in a tough economic time where I can't spend a lot of money on my hobby. However, if I can spend a little to enjoy the most, this is the route that I'm going to travel. Um, I, I, I think that this is probably the easiest and less expensive and the most enjoyable way of getting into hobby.
0: Well, I thank you so much, and I hope to have you back again, and we'll talk some more about QRP. And then uh, the next time you're on, we can explore some different areas and some things that you can talk about for those okay, folks.
1: thank you very much. It was, uh, it, it was a fun conversation. I, uh, I, I, there's no limit to how far we can go with this. I, I love talking about this hobby, and QRP is one of the, the nicest ones that has come across. There are many facets to amateur radio. Uh, QRP is only one one inch on the ruler, and I hope that you have um, some idea as to how much pleasure we have in the QIP community, enjoy doing this. Thank you very much,
0: Ted. Week after week, you hear us talk about Transworld antennas, and you hear us talk about the TW2010, the 4040, the Backpacker, and all these different antennas. Of course, the TW2010 Adventurer came first. Folks were amazed at its performance. Then they introduced the Backpacker, and now the 4040. Go to EHam. And read the reviews on the TW 2010. Just go to eHAM and read those reviews. Now, you can do that by going to transworldantennas.com. Just go to transworldantennas.com. Antennas, Transworldantennas, One word. Go to transworldantennas.com. There's a link on that page that will take you right straight to the eHAM reviews. Or you can just go to eHAM yourself. And if you're a ham, you know how to get to Eham on the Internet. Just Google it. You'll get there. <laughs> and read the reviews. See what other amateur radio operators are saying about this antenna. Thank you. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to H1N1Kits.us. That's H1N1Kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, Disinfectant surface wipe antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack the h one n one virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h one n one kits dot u s that's h one n one kits dot u s at q s o we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says i want to win put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website qsoradioshow.com that's qsoradioshow.com and send us an email tell us a little bit about yourself where you're listening how the signal's coming in or if you're listening by podcast but be sure and put on that email i want to win because we're going to have some really really neat things to give away We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to QSORadioShow.com. That's QSORadioShow.com or TedRandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L. And we'll look for your email. Our guest is Jack Davis, and his call sign is k six yc and uh he's also a television engineer and uh the chapter chair of the society of broadcast engineers uh chapter 43 so hello jack how are you i am just fine well i understand you're getting all geared up for uh for doing hd television over there
2: oh we are we uh we just finished the transmitter we ended up doing the conversion ourselves from uh uh, hanging the stuff in the ceiling to everything and uh and then we had uh the factory guy come out and check it out so we we got through that and now we're doing the studio and uh we've got uh you know stuff stacked around here it looks like a warehouse and uh we're we're getting ramped up to do
0: it well i just uh, it's it's interesting because you know when the change first started happening you know you you know i kind of took it for granted i You know, I'd get in front of a, uh, I'd see an HD television sitting somewhere, even the one in the living room, you know, and you'd see the picture on there. You didn't give it much thought. Uh, I don't know, about three or four days ago, I sat down in my living room (laughs) and happened to really notice the television monitor. And uh whatever was on I can't recall, but it was stunning. I mean it was just I mean it was like I all of a sudden it just sank in my head, you know, wow, this is a whole world of difference. So uh I I guess though within a short period of time we're all gonna take that for granted and uh, uh we won't even remember what it was like watching, you know, the regular standard television resolution and uh the old tele analog transmission.
2: Yeah, well I'm in I'm in Sacramento, California and, and We've got some interesting terrain here. The, the Central Valley is as flat as a pool table, and, and the signals just go forever. But on either side, we've got mountain ranges. We've got the High Sierra to the east and the Coast Range to the west. and uh, We find that uh, the, the DTV signals are a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, uh, if you look at the Longley Rice studies and the predictions, they're they're wrong both ways. It goes much further in the valley, and it doesn't go as far into the mountains. Um, we've 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 actually in the digital transition gained a few viewers because of the valley population, but we've lost some in the up in the foothills. Uh, people that were used to watching noisy analog signals, uh, they're gone. So uh, that's been a kind of a mixed bag for us. And also here in the Predominantly in the fall, but also in the spring and sometimes year round, we get these inversion layers here in the valley where the temperature inversion goes up. We have a we have a two thousand foot tower, and when the inversion layer crawls up into that beam, it bends it right into the ground, and we lose everybody out on the periphery. It's uh, it's been that way with analog. It's been that way forever, but there's just not a whole lot we can do about it.
0: No, you know, And I'll tell you, these, these kinds of conditions are strange. Like um, here in the Nashville area, there's a, one particular radio station that, I mean, every morning uh, for about two or three days in a row will get some sort of strange temperature inversion. And the STL just ceases to exist. <laughs> and it'll be that way for about an hour. And then it comes back. And, man, they've done everything under the sun. They still can't seem to have. It's just a long Haul out to the transmitter site, and uh, we we
2: we deal. You know, the STL we deal with with space and and frequency diversity, but you don't have that choice in your main transmitter signal. You know, and um, it it's kind of a you know it's not a unique problem by any stretch, but it is a problem that uh, it doesn't explain readily to viewers.
0: Well, when I was talking to you the other day, you mentioned that you were. was uh, <laughs> we were talking about ham radio and uh, commercial broadcast radio, and you mentioned that you were a. Uh, I guess I want to say VHF and up specialist, or at least you. Uh, you that that's where your expertise was.
2: Oh, I don't know that I'm an expert in anything, but uh, I had a UHF repeater here, and uh, because of the Pave Paws and the Air Force up at Beale Air Force Base, we. Uh you know, if you're running 5 watts and they want you to reduce at 39 dB, uh, you can do the math. So uh, <laughs> I moved up to 900. I've got a couple of 900 megahertz repeaters, and uh, and uh, the UHF band going away has really injected a lot of uh, life into the 900 band. And I'm also a microwave guy, uh, 57, 60, uh, 10 gigahertz, uh, 34, 56 um you know, uh, I, I'm. Uh, that's really where my interest is. Uh, I mean, I have an HF rig in my car, but I I don't do that very often. I'll check into a net or something, but my real interest is microwave.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about operating up there. What what uh, uh, what what have you found? I guess I want to say to be the major difference between operating up there and operating, say, on the two meter band.
2: Well. The tolerances are just really tight. I mean, you're dealing with uh, very narrow beam widths. Um, a lot of times, you're doing you're 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 operating what's called a rover, which is uh, uh, something that you can throw in your car and take out to a mountain peak. Uh, here again, in in the Central Valley of California, we've got you know long flat stretches and. Uh, uh theoretically uh you should be able to get a signal from Fraser Peak, uh, which is up above the grapevine in Los Angeles all the way to Reading. But uh I don't think anybody's ever done it. Um uh, the other thing is kind of interesting is the propagation. For example, uh there's a real good uh way uh propagation on ten gigahertz to bounce it off rain. Uh, I mean we don't get much rain here in the summer but uh in the midwest that's real popular is is rain rain bounce
0: rain bounce I've never heard of that before so now well is, that,
2: that might not be the right technical term but it's my term
0: uh how far away would the rain be that you're 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 using as a reflector
2: oh i think you can be in it or away from it i i, I don't I, I don't think it really matters it's just it's a, it's a surprising thing to me
0: well, how does that behave? Like, for example, if you want to make an, a, a contact, and uh, you want to do that via rain bounce, obviously someone on the other end is going to be having is going to have to do the same thing, or at least be cognizant of it.
2: Well, generally, microwave contacts are prearranged. I mean, your odds of findings, you know, it's not like a DX contest. It's it, you're you know you're you're dealing with a limited number of stations to begin with and and typically uh, you you want to coordinate that with somebody in advance or during a contest uh, advertise where you are and and so people can uh, you know kind of get stuff in your direction um, it's it's not uh, you're not dealing with you're, you know you're dealing with a very directional signal and and not a lot of power, you know. Uh, you're probably talking on a rover 10 watts or less for all bands.
0: Uh, for those that don't know, and, and even for myself, because I'm not totally familiar with this, describe a rover. What is a rover, and how do you use this?
2: Um, it's typically a, a dish of some sort, uh, either a, a, a direct T V dish with an offset feed or a a prime focus feed, or, you know, a, a, something three feet or smaller. It, it's mounted on a, typically, a, a tripod with a pan and tilt head. And and back behind there, you've got an up converter, a power amplifier, a local oscillator. Uh, you typically, you know, drive it with, uh, I use two meters, but uh, a UHF is also popular. And uh, it's just, basically an up-converter. You take uh, two meters and up-convert it to 5760 and, and filter it and run it through a power amplifier. In the same way on the receive side, you've got a, either a bi-directional mixer or two mixers. Uh, I, I kind of like the two-mixer approach because you can optimize one for receive and one for transmit. Uh, just because it mixes up on transmit doesn't mean it has a good noise figure for receive
0: oh that's interesting but i'd like i'd like to know what you know because i I used to have to i struggled with stls (laughs) everywhere i've ever been the stls have always been um you know problematic i guess i want to say and a lot of it has to do i'm sure from applied technology or the lack of skill (laughs) in dealing with it you know um i found it hard to believe that when mosley put out these um, what were they called Starlinks? i think it is um, that they would tra- travel such distances with such low power. I mean, these things put out just a, a tiny a bit of power. What is it, one or two watts or something? I mean, as compared to, you know, the the uh, composite counterparts who would put out a lot of power. Uh, how is it that they're able to work as well as they do? or Or, or do you see that lack of power present a deficit at some point?
2: Well, it's kind of a difference between analog and digital. Uh, uh, the Starlink being, uh, I believe, that's a digital device. And as long as you can keep it above the threshold, you're good to go. Um, with, with now, I have not tried any digital modes. Uh, there's there's people uh, using uh, PSK31 and some other. Uh, Digital modes on on the microwave bands, but I personally don't have any experience with that. Um, most of the contacts are either sideband or CW, uh, typically CW, uh, because of the you know you're dealing with really weak signals and uh, you got to really get it up out of the noise. Uh, another thing that that helps you with this is. Uh, Trying to get your antenna working properly and and everything. There's a number of beacons on hilltops around here that that continuously transmit and uh, they uh, typically you know send their location and and their grid square and and uh, the uh, uh, do a little key down for for tuning and 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 you can use that to optimize your your receive system.
0: Well, now is is microwave? Let me ask you this. Uh, is microwave any more dangerous to work with than, than lower frequency RF? I mean, are there any cautions or anything that you have to be aware of when dealing with it?
2: Well, you know, the, the, the power levels that most hams use now, uh, you know, there's some people that do run some power, and I suspect that you wouldn't want to stand in front of that dish. Uh, the the the, the power levels that I and most of the people that I know use probably aren't going to be a problem. And, and, and typically it's pretty self-limiting because you're up at some forest lookout up in the Thule's and uh, there's nobody around anyway. So, uh, But you, that is something you want to be aware of. I mean, uh, with antenna gain and, and a little bit of power, you can develop some pretty good ERP.
0: Um. I was going to say, cause, I mean, I, I've heard all this caution about, you know, microwave, and and uh, but you're in the same, fr- is that the same frequency range, though, that most folks are used to hearing about radar? Does radar operate in that particular band of frequencies?
2: Well, 5760 is kind of a shared band with the ISM stuff, and and that's a little problem because there's a lot of 802.11a uh stuff in there, and, and you know, uh, uh, Wi-Fi, and uh, uh, the part 15 stuff, that's also a problem at 900 megahertz, it, it's part 15 stuff in there. Uh, a, a lot of these bands are shared, and there is a certain amount of junk in them, and that's another advantage of going to a mountaintop. Although with 900, going to a mountaintop isn't necessarily a, a solution, because a lot of the uh, backbone
0: uh, for wireless ISPs is done on the 900 meg band. Well, you know, I guess, you know, with with, um, with all the things that are going on on amateur radio now, that's an area that I'm sure is going to be of avid interest in further expo- you know, exploration as time goes on. And and I was wondering, though, now, you know, you, you hear people talk about doing work with um, with SETI and radio astronomy and radio telescopes, in that frequency range, uh, are you able to hear emissions from objects in space? Uh, uh, you know different types of things. I mean, I've, I've been told the planet Jupiter puts out a certain amount of, of uh, RF, and and, um, and of course in some of these distant galaxies, you can pick up uh, you know supposedly hiss and noise and things coming in. Now, have you ever done any of that? Have you ever ever heard of it being done?
2: Well, oh sure, the sun is a huge uh, source of noise. Uh, uh, the moon has some source of noise. Uh, some of the planets do i believe uh, that's a little something i've never really uh, poked up into the air but there's a lot of people do uh, moon bounce with microwaves um, it's uh, now that takes a, a much bigger antenna than than your typical rover that's more of a you know a, a earth station satellite dish size thing but uh, there's a interesting group of guys over here all about 60, 80 miles west of me over around Monterey, they've acquired uh, uh, I don't know, rights or abilities to use a, uh, a, a, uh, it's an old, I don't know if it was NASA or whose dish it was, but it's like a 30 meter dish or it's huge. And uh, they've been able to work moon bounce with that with very low power because of the antenna game. And uh, they go over there and have a party every now and then. It's called the, the let's see, what is it, the Jamesburg dish, and uh, they'll go over there and uh, have a work party, and, and they've got the elevation and azimuth drives going, and uh, uh, but it's, I'm sure you could hear planetary noise with that guy.
0: You know, I was going to say, is it all that difficult, or how, describe uh, to, to folks, and, I, and of course we've got a lot of younger folks listening to this that, that are curious as well, um, in that frequency range, I'm sure, that, uh, you, is the optimum place to do moon bounce. How much power does it take, uh, and, and what sort of an antenna system does it take to, to do just entry-level moon bounce? Oh,
2: there again, uh, that's all over the place, but probably a 3-meter dish and, uh, oh, maybe 30, 40 watts might get you uh, in as a player, uh uh, bigger is better
0: have you have you done a significant amount of that have you played around with moon bounce much at all
2: no i haven't i i i, I was over one time at a guy that that uh, was was doing moon bounce but that that's just something that uh, I, i'm more of a line of sight guy
0: is it possible to do moon bounce on lower frequencies i mean what what is the lowest frequency that you could actually succeed at
2: question i know you can do it at two meters i don't know about six meters um you know i don't know the answer to that
0: oh i was wondering i mean i, mean, I would imagine on two meters it would take a, a fair a fair amount of power and a, a, a number of elements i mean if you try to do it with do it say for example the with a, with a long yaggy i would imagine it would take quite a bit of power and
2: uh well i think the minimum there would be four or eight yaggies you know on an h frame to to, to get into there and then and significant power and some really esoteric uh, low noise amplifiers
0: oh, was I was mean, you're, that... you're,
2: you're dealing with really weak signals coming back from the moon the moon isn't uh, you know a, a, a flat surface it's an irregular surface so the it's not a necessarily a perfect reflector it's a, it's far from a perfect reflector so those signals are really low, and and uh, the beauty of it is, you can typically test the performance of your system by listening for your own echoes because of the propagation delay. You can you can talk or say something or send a few characters and then hear it come back.
0: Uh, for those that are listening and they're wondering, Ted, are you really that dumb when it comes to this stuff? And the answer is yes. Uh, (laughs) you know i'm asking entry-level questions but i know there's a lot of guys out there that are in the same shoes i'm in they they've wondered this stuff but you know you're so busy you don't get a chance to really ask someone that knows you know and uh well now you know you you, uh used to be that there was uh, folks that had the c-band satellite dishes in their backyard and they were kind of satellite hobbyists you know they would turn the things around is there anything up there now that uh, that folks could actually listen to without having to have some real sophisticated means of decoding a uh, you know an encrypted or digital signal that's, uh, uh, you know
2: di- well, difficult th- to do there's a few people that do satellite dxing for a hobby uh, uh the c band stuff has kind of uh, i mean there's still use on c band but it's not what it was back in the heyday Um, a lot of the news feeds now are on KU Um, there some of them are encrypted some are in the clear but there is a if you do an internet search uh, you'll find that there's uh, uh, you know channel lists and uh, people talking about hey I caught this and I caught that and uh, uh, but there is a you know that's kind of a it's it's sort of a <laughs> the ultimate SWL, I guess, if you want to put it that way.
0: It seems like that would be really interesting. I, I recall being at a friend's house. that had a C band satellite, and we just kept moving the thing around. And there were satellites that were outside of the normal. Uh, you know, when they would install one for the home, uh, it had a certain arc or range to it. But there were some that were outside of that, and there were some pretty strange things on those satellites. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Uh, well, eavesdropping on the things
2: there's there's you know uh, i have a buddy that's got a satellite dish that he uses for weather uh you know there's these NOAA satellites up there that transmit uh weather data and uh, i believe it's probably a fax format and uh it's uh i i don't know the frequency of that uh, i want to say it's 1.4 gigahertz but i'm 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 not 100 percent sure of that but uh, you know, there's, there's military stuff up there. There's uh, uh, just because it's not, just, you know, it, 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 not everything is C-band or KU. I mean, there's lots of frequencies that
0: are used for various purposes. We'll be right back with more QSO and our guest Jack Davis, K6YC, right after this. In this day and time, what we don't have much of is time. And if you enjoy operating and you just don't get a chance to, you need to take a look at the Transworld Antennas, TW2010, and all the models that operate the different bands. Go to YouTube and put in Transworld Antennas and see how simple this thing is to set up. I mean, it is easy. It goes together fast. And, of course, that gives you more time to operate. You're not fussing around with an antenna. In an emergency situation... It is absolutely necessary. You need to have one of these, if not for yourself, for your club, or whoever it is that may get called out on a scene where you've got to operate and you've got to be able to set up quickly and efficiently. Go to their website, and that's transworldantennas.com. Transworldantennas.com. There's a link up there to YouTube, and you can see how quickly this antenna sets up, how easy it is to operate. Transworldantennas.com. Dot com h1n1 if you haven't given it much thought you need to start now go to h1n1kits.us that's h1n1kits.us look at the menu and go to h1n1 flu tracker map usa you can see exactly where the h1n1 virus is breaking out it may be in your community already you can order the flu blocker influenza kits today They contain all the necessary personal protection equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Here at QSO, we've got something new, and that's a prize closet. And we are in the process of filling that prize closet up. And we're going to be telling you on the air some of the items that we've got in the prize closet. If you'd like to win some of these things, we'd love to see you do that. But what you've got to do is send us an email. Go up to the website tedrandall.com or qsoradioshow.com and when you go to that website just simply send us an email say hello tell us where you're listening how the signal's coming in if you're listening by podcast tell us how you have joined this radio show and then put a little note in there that says i want to win and we'll put your name in the hat and we will have a drawing twice a month And we're going to be giving away what's in our prize closet. Now, I can't tell you everything that's in there so far. But we'll be posting those items up on the website. And we'll be telling you about them on the air. But don't miss out. Send us an email. And put in that email, I want to win. And let's see who the lucky winners will be. And now on QSO, back to our guest, Jack Davis, K6YC of Sacramento, California. Well, you know, um I guess uh, the other question I was going to ask is um, uh, how how do you I guess I want to say how did you get into amateur radio? What was your what was the entry trigger that <laughs> that, that all of a sudden you woke up one day and said I want to I want to do this or the first time you ever saw amateur radio or decided you wanted to get into it?
2: Oh, I, I knew a guy uh, I grew up in a little town in North Dakota and and I knew a guy that ran a radio and repair shop and i took to hanging around there when i was oh i don't know eighth grade freshman in high school maybe and and I, and he was a ham and i just sort of got infected and uh and of course you know uh we were so far from an fcc examining point as back in the days when you had conditional licenses and so forth and it just i started there and and uh uh, I've met just a tremendous amount of really good friends, long time friends on ham radio.
0: Well, we we got to talking yesterday, and you started telling me about some stuff called case nifla, which I had never <laughs> heard of before. <laughs> and uh, I had ask you because uh, you know Holly is uh, works with us here, and she's a you know she's from Beulah. And uh, she's always making jokes of saying that she's from Beulah, don't you know? And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyways, uh, you you worked in the state of North Dakota, did you not, in, in the television business? For, for oh,
2: oh, I did. I, uh, uh, at, uh, at the time it was called the North Dakota State School of Science, and uh, I uh, I graduated from there, and I went to work at KXJB TV in Fargo. Uh, back in the days when it was owned by an interesting guy named John Bowler, and uh, that was probably the healthy on days of television for me because it was a lot of people involved, and a bunch of those guys were hams too, and, and we had kind of a social, working, really cool environment there. I mean, uh, most of the guys at the transmitter were hams, and a lot of the guys at the studio, and. It was just kind of like a a, a boys' club, only you got paid to go to work, and uh, I really liked that, and uh, I knocked around there for a couple of years, and then uh, local board number six got a hold of me, and I spent a few years in the Army, and and there again, uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, did a little Mars program work there back in the day, and... uh, and then when I got out of the army i uh, uh, I went to work for Motorola for a few years as a as a field service guy and then I decided maybe I ought to go back into television and uh, i I've, I've kind of been there ever since and uh, i uh, I worked in Fargo and I worked in Bismarck and uh, I uh, moved out here to uh, California in 1986.
0: Um what what was your let me just your first ham rigs what was the first uh, equipment that you got your hands on and uh, uh how did all that work out Well the first transmitter
2: I had was a DX35 and uh, the receiver wasn't mine it was one a guy loaned me and it was an NC300 and that thing was a Cadillac I mean at the time that was just absolutely top shelf <laughs> and uh I, I love that thing, and uh, I, I keep telling myself someday I'm going to find a nice, clean one and buy it, just to just to have it. You know, uh, one of those kind of sentimental things.
0: Now, was that was that a was that a national or?
2: Yes, and uh, it was it was pretty nice. It, it a slide rule dial that rotated, and uh, a reasonably uh, heavy on the word reasonably accurate uh, display, and uh, it it was uh, you know. Boy, that was like pretty amazing stuff you know and my transmit receive switch was a was an old uh, uh, porcelain knife switch that I switched back and forth uh, to go from transmit to receive
0: well that's uh, and, and you know there's a lot of guys that did that a lot of guys did exactly that well uh, did, did you get the novice license to start with is that did you start it all with a, with a novice
2: I, I did, and then it, it expired because I I wasn't where there was an e- examination point. So I dropped out for a little while, and then I came back. and I, I've been around the country. I, I lived in Wisconsin for a while. I had a nine call, and I had a zero call, and um, a couple of zero calls, and and then uh, now I I'm I, I changed to a six call when I moved out to California, just because uh, it kind of.
0: Some of the confusion. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know they changed that. I, I didn't like that because it used to be you could tell where everybody was approximately. You know, you had some idea what section of the country that you were working in. Today, it, <laughs> you don't have any idea. You know, I got a four call, not a four call. I've got an eight call, and I'm in four land. So, I mean, I, I, you know, there's just no rhyme or reason to it. I kind of wondered why that was. Wondered why they oh, did I, that. I
2: got a vanity call. Uh, There was one really, really huge advantage to being a ham in North Dakota. Um, There's, Well, when I lived there, there was 640,000 people in the whole state. And I don't know what percentage of them were hams, but there wasn't very many of us. I mean, I probably knew a third of the hams in the state personally. And uh, you could get on and call CQ and mumble something about being a North Dakota. And you didn't have any trouble making a contact. Now in California, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty tough to uh, to get around that. So maybe that's what drove me up to the microwave bands.
0: Um, let's talk about uh, television and radio engineering. Did, did you do radio engineering at all? I mean, I think you told me you you had worked at a number of AM stations or
2: o- over the years. Uh, I worked for companies that had radio and television. Uh, I did some part-time work at a, at a radio station uh, one time uh, uh, or another. And, and I mean, I've got a little radio background. Uh, when I worked for Meyer Broadcasting, we had uh, KFYR in, in Bismarck. And uh, when I worked for John Bowler, we had KFGO in Fargo. And uh, we had a station in, in, in Jamestown, North Dakota, and around. And so uh, we get out on summer vacation, relief, and uh, go help somebody do a project. And uh, my my background is primarily television, but I do have a you know a smattering of AM and FM uh, uh, radio in it. Uh, in Bismarck, we also had an FM. It's an interesting uh, thing. We we had a a channel five super turnstile on an eleven hundred foot tower. Wow! And uh, we had a we had a, a a uh, an fm on 92.9 and we did a few measurements and that thing seemed to be pretty broadband so we built uh, we had a triplexer built and we actually put the fm on the tv antenna and had oral visual for channel 5 and uh, 92.9 and boy that thing worked really well
0: now well, that's and, surprising uh, really. and
2: later in life uh uh, some consultant came along and decided we should be circular polarized. Then we put up a, a rototiller type antenna, and uh, we may have gained a little bit in auto and, in cars, but we actually, I think, dropped a little bit in actual uh, penetration into the marketplace.
0: Well, with a with a television antenna uh, as a as a transmit antenna, would he give you any particular? Um I guess I want to say any particular polarization. Would it be horizontal, vertical, or how how would that have been?
2: Well, at Channel 5, it was horizontal. Uh, what it was at 92.9, I don't know. And we kind of had to uh, take a little editorial liberties with the rules to license that thing because, uh, you know, what do you use for an antenna pattern and what do you use for a model? Um uh, it was all based on some theoretical stuff. I believe probably Burr James did some of the paperwork on that, and uh, it, uh, <laughs> it it worked really well. I, that's all I can tell you is it worked wonderfully. But uh, it was one of those things that who thunk it, you know?
0: <laughs> well, I, I know uh, from from working in the past on FM stations, it seemed like the the uh, the horizontal uh, polarization of some of those. The stations I worked for in the past had dual antennas, and uh, one in particular in, in the Detroit area had a, a horizontal and a vertical transmitter connected to the appropriate antennas. And uh, the horizontal, for some reason, really did the number as far as in-home listening. It, uh, it really opened the door to building penetration, uh, where... The vertical didn't do quite so well that way, you know. So if you lost the horizontal, you lost the in-home listeners. <laughs> they were they just were gone, you know, as compared to the uh, the uh, the, uh, the automobiles, which uh, it seems like the vertical did really well with those. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Is is that is that your findings, or is that how it's supposed to work, or is that, <laughs> or am I well,
2: just? I don't have any empirical data on that, but uh, I I do. Uh, uh, I do know that, uh, you know, there's there's a, there's a some commonly held beliefs that uh, that uh, vertical polarization works better on a vertical rod than a car, but, um, you know, I've never made any measurements. I don't know that myself, but...
0: Uh, well, I've heard people you know. say that it doesn't make any difference at all by the time the signal gets done, you know, traveling two or three miles and bouncing off uh, of a million different objects that... <laughs> <laughs> it lacks polarization. Period. I don't know, but I do know on um, on some. You know, when you're working with, uh, say, for example, RPU units, and you're using a Marty on VHF. Uh, if those antennas are not polarized the same way, you're you're you got a problem. <laughs> it isn't going to work very well. So, yeah. um, well,
2: well, that's true. I mean, that that's that's very evident in the microwave bands. Uh, polarization is uh, worth worth at least twenty dB. Uh, if not a little more, sometimes. So, uh, but I, at, at low frequencies uh, like uh, eighty-eight to one hundred eight, I, I don't know how important that is. To be honest with you, that's uh, that's a little above my pay grade.
0: Well, did you ever, you know, growing up uh, when you were in you know elementary and high school, did you ever have any interest in, in radio at that point, or was there anything knocking on your door back then, or? or is this oh
2: yeah, I had the old um, uh, night kit uh, phono oscillator and a turntable and a and a microphone. I I had one of those and uh, we uh, we put it on a longer wire than it should have been, and uh, it was amazing how that thing got out. But yeah, I uh,
0: I fooled around with that. You know, that was the the, the little uh, was it? It was green or blue. Had uh, three tubes and a hot chassis.
2: Yeah, that's it. It had an RCA connector for a microphone, and uh, there was a, a mica trimmer on it to adjust the frequency. We used to say we were on an assumed frequency of 680 kilohertz.
0: <laughs> we know, there's an amazing number of guys that have got those things, and uh, some of them still have their original little night kit transmitters that uh, that fool with them. And everybody I've talked to said they never was able to get rid of the hum. Did you ever get the hum out of yours by any chance?
2: And no, it was always there. that was just sort of like
0: a, a fingerprint it <laughs> was a lot i you know I, I had a lot of fun uh you know there was a a company, lafayette radio made a little um funnel oscillator on an l chassis and mm-hmm. i those things were cheap. i think they sold for like four dollars or something. i don't know and they made a little uh, a little mic mixer i think with four pots on it and a nine volt battery and it was just you know it was just a line level in and out kind of thing. And I think it was five bucks. So, with with those two pieces and a turntable, and as long as you observe, observe polarization when you went to plug it in, you know, which that, I was really—I was a kid. I the first time I ever plugged one in, I got it wrong, and um, it scared the daylights out of me. I had no idea what I had done, you know. And uh, of course, I learned real quick, you know, (laughs) the learning process on that was pretty, when you're holding a 110 volt cord in your hand and you shove it in the wall and it's a dead short, (laughs) it makes an announcement and lets you know you just screwed up. (laughs) But uh, boy, you talk about a lot of fun. I'll tell you what I did with mine though. Uh, Later on, of course, I I ran a little higher power and I had an encounter with the uh, Federal Communications Commission in Detroit um the head field guy who was very kind to me incidentally he was not at all um you know he was just intrigued that i had built up this transmitter but when i had the photo oscillator i took a wire and i went out to the back and i wouldn't recommend anybody do this today because there's no telling what you're going to wrap around but the phone company had um bundles evidently it looked like a bundled wire pack that that ran inside of something that almost looked like a uh you know about the size of a uh, tomato soup can you know but it it ran the whole length of the cable but the outside sheath was exposed and i didn't have the slightest idea what i was doing but i took some bare wire and a rock and i wrapped that around there a couple times and connected it up to the the uh, photo oscillator and, and i had a carrier current station at that point <laughs> Any, you could go anywhere near there was a telephone and i mean i'm talking about you know almost a mile away And as long as you held that that radio up to the telephone, the thing, you could hear it, you know. So, boy, we had a lot of fun with that. And I don't think those things, they couldn't have put out much more than 100 milliwatts. Do you think they put out any more than that?
2: Oh, I I doubt it. Uh, um, What what, what I did was, um, uh, where I lived was um, a lot of oil exploration going on. And the seismograph crews would go out with these uh, electric blasting caps, and they had Oh, hundreds and hundreds of feet of this blasting wire that they would throw away after every shot and they just wind it up into a ball and throw it in the back of their truck and and just for the asking you know you could get as much of that as you could carry and uh, it was yellow and some of it was pink as different colors and uh, we'd take and strip that back and twist the ends together and Maybe solder it, maybe not, and then string that up over the trees and down through the neighborhood, and uh, you could uh, you could get a pretty good antenna that way.
0: My goodness, I'll imagine something that long, but but you know, broadcast band AM. That's a, that's a long, it's a long wavelength, especially if you're at the low end of the band. My goodness, you got to have a a pretty long wire. Well, that's that's cool. I don't know. I think I think those of us who had those little transmitters and played around, I think we learned. So much from that, you know. Especially, it was a, uh, you know, I, I guess I want to say a, a precursor to uh, to getting into amateur radio. And of course, at that time, I didn't understand the relationship of frequency and wavelength. None of that. I didn't know any of that. I had no idea what that was. And uh, it, it was just it was just playing around. I, well,
2: well, there was a sticker right on the thing that had some ominous warning about you shall not put more than ten feet of wire on here. And and it was just a little, uh, you know, a lug strip that that you put it onto, and you know it. Well, it it, it didn't take long for that fear to go away, and <laughs> and, and away you go.
0: I don't think well, anybody. I don't think anybody paid any attention to the little sticker. I think folks hook the things up to whatever they can hook them up to. You know, well and,
2: uh, that that you know uh, when I was in uh, when I was in Fargo. Uh, I worked at KXJB Channel Four, and we had a two thousand sixty foot tower with a, a six bay uh, uh, super turnstile up there. And after sign off at night, I back in the days you signed off at midnight. I'd pull the I'd pull the line loose and, and put my two meter rig on there. And gosh, I used to work a guy named Andy almost every night in Winnipeg. Wow! Uh, full quieting with uh, with two watts. I mean. The, the height and the, and that antenna wasn't anywhere near resonant, but uh, boy, that thing really worked. Just uh, getting it up that high.
0: Well, we we had a, a local FM go off here that we were working for, and uh, uh, Matt, my son, had his uh, F six, the uh, little handy talkie, with him, and uh, we we rigged a connector and got onto the ten bay antenna up on top of about eight hundred foot tower and that little ht he was hitting he could hit a repeater on every frequency i mean it was like it, i don't know where they all were at but i mean it was like the whole band just filled up all of a sudden and uh, it was like being in an airplane i guess i don't know but uh, see i i you know we get to play around these broadcast engineers get to play around a little bit i know these am daytime stations a couple of a number of times i've uh, hooked a ham rig up to the tower and got on 160 meters after dark you know
2: oh, and, oh my friends do that every year. Uh, One of them is the chief engineer at an AM station with a two-site array, you know, a daytime site and a nighttime site. And uh, they go out there on the nighttime site and work all night on 160, and uh, they do really well on the contest. Uh, They built up a a pretty simple antenna tuner on a sheet of plywood, and they just pull the coupling links and couple into that antenna, and they're good to go.
0: Oh, yeah, and a we had an AM off the air here, not too far away from uh, uh, Nashville, that, that we, were, we had actually had to send away for some parts, and I took the little Alinco DX70 that we had here and that uh, EDX2 tuner uh and i i don't have a whole lot of faith in antenna tuners but i we clamped that onto an am tower and grounded it really good and got on 160 and boy it just it performed really well uh i don't even think i ever got to the 80 meter band i was going to try it just to see what it would do but it it really did well well tell me a little bit also about your local sbe chapter society of broadcast engineers and the reason why i want to bring this up is we have a lot of hams a lot of especially younger guys that are listening that uh, in the back of their head, they're they're thinking about broadcast engineering and going possibly into that as a field. And um, you know, of course, the Society of Broadcast Engineers uh, is a group that's nationwide, uh, and I'm a member. Matter of fact, our whole family is, a, is <laughs> members of the SBE. And uh, uh, tell us about your chapter because I, I looked in it. In it, you know, you've got Bob Heil coming in here to do a, an audio seminar and it looks like you guys are, are, are getting to go to an organ concert afterwards but tell me about your chapter because i know you're the chair and i'm sure you could tell us a little bit about it
2: yeah I'm, I'm chapter chair of sbe chapter 43 in sacramento uh we have a real active group um we meet once a month the last uh, last tuesday of the month uh 11 months out of the year we don't have a uh, a, a meeting in december we just sort of have a party we all all the members and all our newsletter advertisers are all invited to, to, to join us for a little hospitality and uh, a lot of fun uh, but the other meetings we typically uh, will have a presenter that'll uh, talk about something of of interest uh, you know and, and we try to keep a balance between radio and television and uh uh, a lot of the stuff now with uh, server based technology is getting remarkably similar. And uh, we've attracted some really good uh, presenters. Um, we've had a couple of NS workshops. Uh, the last, uh, we had one this year and, and two years ago. And uh, those are an excellent source of uh, uh, education. And uh, we've kind of. Decided now that we're going to host one of those every other year, if uh, you know national permitting, and uh, we we attract uh, you know a pretty good following from all over for those workshops, and they're they're really they're really well done and they're good. Um, Bob Heil is one of our favorite presenters. Uh, uh, we we meet in the back room of a Denny's, just because it's kind of in the middle of everything and centrally located, and. Uh, we can fill that up to standing room only when Bob comes to town because he's such an entertaining guy. But we've had some really good uh, presenters and some... Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, SBE fan because, uh, I, I, you know, now that you don't have a first-class license anymore and, and you don't have, uh, you know, when you're hiring somebody, you, you, you don't have the yardsticks that you used to have and And I think uh, SBE certification is a, is a real good measure and And to be honest, uh, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but uh, I kind of feel a little better about somebody applying for a job that's a ham. I kind of figure if if you want to do this on your time, you'll probably do a better job on my time, you know.
0: Uh, I I believe that's true. Uh, one of the things, of course, both of my sons are chief engineers, so, but they're both hams. And uh, I've said uh, this a number of times. I've said that you know the the idea of pulling antennas up into trees, you know, and 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 dipping the plate on a on a, on a transmitter and building something, you know, uh, really I think stretches the mind to the point where when you get into the professional situation uh you're able to think on your feet you know you you you're you're thinking i i believe has expanded to the point where you become a lot better at problem solving troubleshooting the whole nine yards i i just don't i really feel very strongly about that i think amateur radio really provides a great background
2: mm-hmm. well I, I i do too and i think uh You know, a field day is good practice for when your FM tower falls down or, or, you know, your transmission line burns up. I I think there's some transfer skills. I mean, I don't want to steer this back to ham radio. You were talking about SBE. But uh, I I think that, you know, there is some parallels there, and and, uh, I think uh,
0: that's a good mix. Well, you know, when you were talking about the the licensing, you know, back when... When the um you know in, in the the period of time that that when I got started in radio, they were encouraging announcers to get the first class license, and the reason why they were is because they could take meter readings. <laughs> they didn't have to have uh, a duty engineer, so to speak. They're taking readings in in, in the transmitter room while there was a, they were also paying an announcer on the air. They wanted one guy, so there was this a uh, term. I don't know if you recall this. We were referred to as combo guys, combo people who had the license and could take the meter readings and be on the air at the same time. So a lot of these schools sprung up around the country that would uh, would get you through that first class. Actually, you take the second class elements first and then get the first, but uh, would take you through that. But the people who would come out of those schools they knew how to pass the test they knew the answers <laughs> but they had no clue about anything engineering wise I mean they, they had learned a few terms in the process but uh, if a transmitter was off the air uh they didn't have a prayer I mean they had no idea what to do so we had we had a whole group of that kind of uh those kind of people entering into the radio business as announcers with first class licenses and some of them uh, later down the road, were actually hired in as engineers, and of course that that turned out to be quite a disaster in some cases. <laughs> but uh the ham radio background and any technical schooling that a person gets, I think, really uh, enhances their ability to to perform. And, and 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 we did an interview here not too long ago with Ronnie Millsap. Are you familiar with Ronnie at all? Oh yeah. And and Ronnie talks about the fact that the ham radio background really gave him an edge working in the studios recording you know because he had he it just it really sharpened his skills completely so um, well now do you um i, I guess what i'll say now in your your local sbe chapter uh, looking at the website and, and just hearing people talk it sounds like you guys really uh have a lot of fun and you're very active what do you think some of the key success the keys to success in a local chapter are what makes this uh this chapter forty three uh, such an outstanding group
2: well um, I've been chairman or vice chairman or i've been I've been associated with the group for years and years and years since nineteen eighty six and we've we used to have our meetings in the evening we we would go to places in the evening and and um, that you know we found out later didn't work so good because people would go home, have dinner, and then they didn't want to go out again. So we switched to meetings at noon, and, and man, did that make a difference. Uh, everybody got to eat lunch, so, hey, okay, come and show up. And and typically, and, and here again, this is no big secret, but if, if the presenter buys lunch, it ups the turnout. You know, it's basically, you know, engineers drive on their stomachs, and if somebody's buying lunch, hey, I'll make a point to come. I mean, I I have no delusions about that. But we also, if somebody doesn't buy lunch, we do have a good turnout, and, and it's because of the programs. And we have a really good guy that uh, does our programming, uh, Dale Tucker, that used to be at the Radio World Magazine. He's kind of uh, operating uh, on, on his own now, but... He's got a real knowledge of people and who's who and what's what, and he's known these people for years and years, and he can call in a favor. And uh, we get some really decent presenters. Uh, it's educational. There's some camaraderie. Uh, I mean, it's 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 good on multiple levels, and it kind of gives you an idea what's going on around town. I, I've been in markets where, you know, the engineers didn't talk to each other. I mean, you you just it was like. You didn't even see each other. Uh, th- this market is a little different. I mean, we socialize, we talk. Uh, probably there's some managers that would be nervous if they knew how uh, how well the engineers get along. But we, we tend to help each other out. I, 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 one of my favorite examples is a, a few years ago, RCA went out of business and we all had these TCR 100s. And Everybody had a couple of them, and, and parts were really hard to come by. And we were always loaning parts back and forth for TCR one hundreds. I mean, capstan motors and, and uh, bits and pieces. I mean, uh, there, was, there was this continuous back and forth to, just to keep each other going. And it was uh, it was really kind of nice. And this market has always has always been that way. It's, it's uh, people are friendly.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's, it's nice, you know, that at two o'clock in the morning during a bad lightning storm and uh, a station goes off the air, it, it's nice when you can call another engineering buddy to make the trip with you. You know, I mean, it's uh, especially if you've got to go to some really way out place where the transmitter is and uh, where the access is terrible. Two o'clock in the morning, not the optimum conditions. And uh, it's always nice to have someone you can call on. And like you you're talking about loaning equipment back and forth um you know i don't think that uh, i i think that a lot maybe the management they they don't they don't understand it they really don't but the camaraderie between engineers the friendship and the bond uh enables a lot of radio stations and television stations to stay on the air you know because otherwise if if a certain thing fails they don't have the part you know, they may be waiting for, uh, well, in this day and time, you could be waiting for weeks, you know, for a part to come in. So uh, without that camaraderie and friendship, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think they realize what the impact would be without it.
2: Yeah, that's that's true. Oh, and, and I, I forgot to mention, if, if anybody's interested, the national SBE website is sbe.org. And our local one is sbe43.org, which is the Sacramento chapter. Um, I don't know how many chapters there are around the country, but uh, there's, uh, there's a number. Uh, here, here locally, there's one in Reno, there's one in Fresno, there's one in San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Uh, oh. In the high desert, uh, there's one up at uh, Edwards Air Force Base.
0: Uh, well, the the one here in Nashville is Chapter One Hundred Three, so we know we know they're up at least that high in number So, the, if you go to the the national website, though, you can locate uh... the chapter closest to you. So, regardless of where you're located, if you think, well, gee, I'd like to go to one of those meetings and see what well,
2: it, we're, we're always looking for uh, for new um, members. Now, you don't have to be a member to come to a meeting. We uh, we have a we have a big tent approach. Uh, you don't have, We'd like you to be a member, but uh, if you want to come to the meetings, you don't have to be a member. And uh, if you want to learn about broadcasting or meet some people, or uh, we 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 encourage that uh, a, a, as much as we can. And uh, there's a student uh, uh, membership uh, category that uh, is, is, is an open door to people in the, that are that are you know students of some kind and interested in broadcasting and the black
0: arts i was i was going to ask you though um in in the um and now i lost my train of thought but i did have another question i wanted to ask about how long do the meetings last your local your local chapter if they if people show up about what time do they start eating and how long is the the business meeting and then how long does it you know for the rest of the presentation and uh, I mean, what does it carve out of the day, so to speak?
2: Well, we we kind of, we say an hour, but it's an hour to an hour and a half. Typically, we start at noon. Um, not always straight up. We have a little short business meeting, and then we uh, turn it over to the presenter and uh, uh, follow it up typically with questions and answers.
0: But how, I mean, and, and I, you'll just have to excuse me for probing, but I think there's a reason why you folks are successful. About how long is the business meeting prior to the presentation? Oh, uh,
2: probably 10 minutes tops. I mean, we we don't have a lot of business. We typically talk about uh, what's going on around town. Uh, the You know, the Nextel BAS relocation is some interest. Uh, the DTV conversion was some interest. Who's running what kind of power and you know a little shop talk partly and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, you know typically any questions about uh, we talk about the Ennis workshops and uh, things that might be going you know in an adjacent market or or, or something uh, uh, we 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 kind of rub on San Francisco, so what they're doing sort of impacts us as well. And uh, occasionally, there'll be some discussions about something they're doing that may or may not impact something over here.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Well, it uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like to me that uh, y- you just have a, a real fun group to to uh, to come and visit and, and to become a part of. And especially if people are wanting to uh, to meet engineering folks, I mean, because that, this is where. This is where you're going to be able to do just exactly that. Um, as far as the um, the the young people, uh, hi, have you been successful at attracting younger folks into the into the meetings on a regular basis?
2: That's been kind of a tough nut to crack. Uh, uh, there is uh, it. Uh, At Napa College, uh, a little bit west of here in Napa, they they have a broadcast engineering program. And uh, because we meet at noon, it's a little hard for them to come, although I think they were talking about forming their own chapter over there. But uh, in general, that's been a little tough. Um, I think, you know, we've had a few that have come and... uh, shown some interest and, and, uh, and kind of hung around for a little bit. But, uh, if you go to NAB, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot of gray hair. Um, <laughs> and, and I'd like to, you know, think that we could do something about that. And, but I just haven't found the magic application yet.
0: Well, I think that's something that's been a, a factor across the country. It isn't just in, in your chapter, it's everywhere, you know, and, uh, uh, I you know, I'm not sure I know what the answer to that is. But I do know that uh, uh, once young people are acquainted with, you know, with, with radio broadcasting, I guess I'm going to say, and engineering and also amateur radio, uh, once they get acquainted with it, they usually fall in love with it pretty easily. It's not, it uh, isn't a hard sell once they get the exposure. So uh,
2: there's a little something on YouTube that uh, that sort of explains that. Do a little search on YouTube for the knack. Okay, and, uh, you, you you'll you'll find out what that's all about.
0: Okay, well, I, I will, I will definitely <laughs> do that. It's the knack, just the to, knack. Okay, I'll have yeah. to. Yeah,
2: I mean, you, in in my case, it's it's it was sort of a infectious thing. You know, once I got into this, I just went, mm, I like this, and uh, I just kept digging deeper and deeper, and and I I think. You know, maybe that's the 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 epiphany, the the magic moment, is when you realize that, hey, you know, this is fun. I like doing this.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's with anything, you know, and I think that's what happens to a lot of guys that uh, that wind up in in amateur radio. They they get started and uh you know they they get a rig they start making their first contacts and whatnot and all of a sudden it hits them they're like you know i really like this this is a lot of fun (laughs) you know (laughs) and uh but one thing that makes it great and that is regardless if it's an amateur radio group or if it's an sbe group and that is the, the just genuine fellowship you have with other people uh and a, a means that uh that allows you to meet those folks and to be able to meet with them on a regular basis and socialize and whatnot i think that just adds so much to life in general you know it's just a a really cool thing well i i was really impressed with uh with chapter 43 and uh i had a brief exchange with uh john Pore over email and john was saying oh yes these guys are a great group you know <laughs> and uh uh, so anyways uh, my, my my son Matt sent me the link to your to your SBE site and he's quite uh, he's uh, wrapped up and affiliated with Fox TV and uh, I, I was looking at the television station but before we go and I know you're I don't want to take too much of your time tell me just a little bit about uh, about the television station and uh, what all what all you do there and and how all that is set up
2: well, I work uh, at the uh, at a Fox affiliate here in Sa- in Sacramento. Uh, it's owned by uh, Tribune Broadcasting. Uh, been on the air since 1968. Um, started out life as your traditional independent. Ran, kind of push the envelope movies. Uh, first station around to ever run the Deer Hunter, and you know the 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 ownership at the time was uh, pretty. Uh, uh, willing to, to to expose it and take a risk and and re- and reap the rewards. Um, nowadays things are a little more conservative, although Fox tends to push the envelope a little bit. You uh, you tune around and watch a couple episodes of Family Guy, you will uh, get a feel for it, and uh, <laughs> and, and it's kind of fun. Uh, I I. Uh, I uh, we, I've got a lot of people that have been here for years and years and years. i got a guy working for me that's been here 36 years. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's been a, a, a good place to work. I like what I do. I like the people here. Um, I kind of take care of... Well, the other day I kind of thought about it, and, and uh, I'm sort of the fixer around here. Anybody that... Uh, Nobody knows what to do with or anything. Nobody knows what to do with it. It falls on me. So, I guess I'm the Michael Clayton around here, if you will.
0: <laughs> well, I, now is this a now is this this is a standalone television station? In other words, you don't have like two or three stations there, or you're not dealing radio. No, we we do
2: run a second channel on our on our digital channel. We've uh, we run a, a, a Spanish language service called LATV. Uh, which actually has nothing to do with Los Angeles, but uh, it's LATV, and uh, we, you know, during the day, we run a lot of news. We do seven hours of uh, live news a day, plus uh, the Fox Network in the evening and a lot of syndicated programming. Uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the old favorites like Seinfeld and Everybody Loves Raymond and uh, the, the sitcoms off-network and so forth, and uh, this has been a this has been a you know a, a interesting place to work. Uh, before I, I worked at uh, at a station here in town for 15 years that uh, went through a number of ownerships and uh, it was an independent. It was a, a, a WB affiliate. It was a UPN affiliate. Um, it was owned by a number of people, including Paramount Pictures and ultimately CBS. So um, I've got a kind of a, a background in all kinds of people and places
0: well sir i want to i don't want to i don't want to wear you out here but i want to thank you so much for joining us and uh the stories have been interesting we'll have to have you back again after all the HD stuff settles down, you can kind of give us a report on how everything is going. <laughs> and you can tell us about any new microwave and uh, high frequency or ultra high frequency adventures that you're uh, you're getting into in, in the ham realm. So Well,
2: around here if you see a guy with his hair on fire, it's probably me. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. My pleasure. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us, and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email, and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com, and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to QSORadioShow.com. That's QSORadioShow.com or TedRandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of QSO. We want to thank our guests, Jack Davis, k 6 Y C and Dennis Mirandis, K1LGQ, for coming on board this week. Be sure to tune in again on Thursday if you've just caught the tail end of this show. Same time, same station for QSO. And then of course next week, same time, same station. Thank you for listening to QSO.